Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Why It Matters. I'm Tracy Kronzak, Director of Innovation at Now It Matters. I'm Tim Lockie, CEO, founder, and janitor here at Now It Matters. Yeah, I think the janitor part is super important. Um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> we... Ryan Osmeck last week said that he's my co-janitor, and I did not challenge that because if he's willing to help clean, then like, fine, fine with me. So there we go. Anybody with a mop is useful <laughs> to small business <laughs> is what I've exactly. discovered. Exactly. Um, I am really excited to introduce or to have our, our guest today introduce uh, himself because uh, a few weeks back, I had the real privilege of moderating a panel for uh, one of our nonprofit common data model events that featured uh, our guest, Leon, uh, Amy Sample Ward, and a few other folks from the IT industry, including Darrell Booker from Microsoft, around the idea of nonprofits and standards and what the CDM could leverage. And at the end of it, I said, Leon, we have to have you on the podcast as a follow-up to this because not only did I find how you arrived at Cleveland Foundation incredibly interesting, you also hold, for me, who's sort of a Silicon Valley geek, a huge amount of that history as it was lived uh, in your mind. So. I want to turn it over to Leon to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are right now. That would be fantastic. Sure. Be more than happy to, Tracy and Tim. Glad to be part, um, on this podcast. <clears throat> so my name is Leon Wilson, and I wear two hats at the Cleveland Foundation. My title is Chief of Digital Innovation and Chief Information Officer. And in that capacity, I have responsibility of being the um, head IT guy at the foundation overseeing um, all the tools and technology that we use as a community foundation. But equally, I also have a unique position where I also do funding and grant making in the space of digital innovation. And that usually encompasses kind of two parts. At the micro level, it is what people know and know it to be called the digital divide. What are we doing to ensure that residents that we fund, that we serve in our grant making um, um, space are able to be digitally inclu included in this new digital economy, whether it's having access to affordable broadband internet, having access to computers, digital literacy training, um, understanding the, the need necessity of being connected, things of that nature, and work with a host of different partners to try to really elevate and plug in a lot of gaps here in the greater Cleveland area. The second part of that is also looking at Cleveland and the metro area as what can we do from a philanthropic organization to help elevate and transform the region to be viewed more as a technology thought leader and be in the technology thought leadership game. Um, so that's funding with our anchor institutions, our universities on advanced research and things like IoT and 5G and other and AI and things of that nature, blockchain. 
It's also partnering with our municipalities, our county officials, our cities, our, um, our city, and saying what are they doing with a lot of these smart city kind of concepts and, and where's equity coming in and inclusion, inclusion is coming in at as they interact and engage with the residents that they serve. So that's what I do at the Cleveland Foundation. And I think you want to know how I got here. Yeah, because I thought that was a great story. Yeah, so I've been in the, I guess, the nonprofit space for now almost 10 years. And before that, I was a typical IT manager, IT executive in um, for-profit organizations, working at healthcare institutions like various Blue Cross Blue Shields or working in automotive industries, things of that nature, and also consumer goods organizations across the I've worked at a lot of different companies. Um, over over my 25 plus years of, of professional experience. But back in 2011, I recall getting an email or voicemail from a recruiter saying, hey, we're looking for someone to become the, you know, become the senior director or executive director for this program at this nonprofit, helping nonprofits use technology. And the first thing I, when I heard the voicemail, it, I said, well, nonprofits, you can't afford me. Um, <laughs> so I just, <laughs> I, I didn't even bother to respond to the email. I'm in a for-profit, you know, I'm getting management by objective bonuses and I'm getting all other kind of things. And um, I'm like, no, forget that. <laughs> and then they caught me in between meetings and called me at my desk and I listened to them and said, well, okay, Send me, send me the job description, I'll take a look at it. And if I'm interested, I'll give you a call back. And as I read the, read the position, and this is for, um, and it was at the Michigan Nonprofit Association. And that is like the state chamber of commerce for nonprofits. It's the intermediary supporting all nonprofits in the state of Michigan, helping them out as far as capacity building, technical capacity, fundraising, and it's membership base. And I, as I read the program, what they were talking about was taking over, and some people on, on, the, on, on listening to your podcast may remember, there used to be this network called Empower. Yep. yep. And in Michigan, Empower Michigan was, I think, the second or third affiliation in the Empower Network that was started with funding from the C.S. Mott Foundation and the Kresge Foundation with a few dollars from the Kellogg Foundation, three major foundations in the state of Michigan. And at the time, they were looking for an executive director to take over that program. And when I looked at the position, it required, okay, you need a consulting background because you're consulting with all these nonprofits. You need a strong IT background. You need, you need an account management background. You need all these, different, all these different backgrounds. And I said, wow, I have an opportunity to take more, probably I guess a lateral move to go into the space, but really own something and help drive change um, with a business unit, if you will. Again, seeing myself as a technologist where I can really help amplify the utilization of technology in a particular sector. I said, this might be interesting. So I went ahead, accepted the responsibility. And over the course of that four, four and a half years, yeah, roughly about four and a half years, I had the, I had the unique opportunity of working with small to mid-sized and even some large um, nonprofits in the state of Michigan doing some phenomenal things. And being their basically outsourced IT department being their virtual CIO, if you will, 
helping them with a host of things and understanding how to, how to manage and navigate and where they should invest in technology and where they shouldn't. But equally, because I was working at the Michigan Nonprofit Association, our sister organization was the Council of Michigan Foundations, their affinity group, bringing together all the foundations in the state of Michigan. So we had a, we had a brother-sister relationship with them. And by that, through that, I built great relationships with a lot of foundations in the state of Michigan. And as we tried to look at data and data analytics and how can we collect data from all the different nonprofits in the state of Michigan to understand what we're doing as a sector and being involved and being behind the scenes and help driving those kind of conversations, I built really good relationships with a number of foundations in the state of, in the state of Michigan. Through that, and through a lot of things that I was doing with, M with the Michigan Nonprofit Association through my running the former Empower, we rebranded re and we called it Highway T. Um, that, you know, with data analytics and so forth, this unique opportunity presented itself um, with the Cleveland Foundation back in 2015. And for about a year or so, the Cleveland Foundations was looking for someone that can be their IT executive and provide greater strategic insight as opposed to at the time they had an IT infrastructure ops kind of person, just maintain the blocking and blocking and tackling to make sure that email works and that people and the servers kept running. And they wanted more strategic direction with that, that, that department but also someone that can look outwardly and help them develop their own strategy and vision for how technology should be utilized, leveraging um, philanthropic dollars. And I said, wow, it's not just a run-of-the-mill CIO position. It's a, it's a two-factor type of position, and I get to get involved in grant-making and giving out money as well as running things. I'm like, wow, this is... And as I talked with them, and as they saw a lot of the connections that I already had back in Michigan, because the philanthropy and foundations is a small club, and I'm name dropping, oh, yeah, I work with this person, that person. And, and they're like, oh, so can we call them and say, not until you offer me the job? Because <laughs> well played. As soon as you talk to them, they're going to run to my boss <laughs> and, and let her know, you know, Leon's looking. <laughs> So, but, and it, it was all, it was all in good spirits, but because of the experience that I had working very closely with nonprofits and working very closely with other um, um, supporting organizations like N10 and at the time I, Idealware and people like that and really knowing how it's really working, what the struggles and what the challenges were um, that I can help them when they're doing grant making, it became just a, it just became great, a, a real good fit. There's so much uh, there that I want to ask you about because you just name dropped a bunch of organizations I care a lot about as well, like Idealware and N10. And, you know, what I really want to call out for folks who might not be familiar with the philanthropic world, that sort of how do nonprofits get strategic funding for technology type of role is still incredibly rare. Mm -hmm. um, it's incredibly forward thinking. And it's frequently buried under a lot of assumptions, at least by my perception, around you know, tech as just that light switch that enables light to be seen versus enables people to really execute mission, right? Like there's a fundamental difference between looking at a computer with the same frame of mind that you would like a built-in light switch 
as you would a gateway to something that is truly transformational for a community. And I think we're still figuring all that out by my observation, at least. No, you're absolutely right. And I, and we, we were fortunate that our CEO, Ron Richard, he had a unique um, um, career himself. He wasn't your traditional foundation president that kind of came up from the field of philanthropy as a program officer and when COO, chief operating officer and moved up or coming from some other think tank. No, this guy came from the CIA. Mm, <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. Literally, I mean, he, before he came to the Cleveland Foundation, he was the um, president of a branch of the CIA called NQTEL, which was the R&D. Yeah, that's like deep R&D. R&D venture capital um, organization investing in the intelligence community. And prior to that, he spent 15 years or so at Panasonic in Japan. So he had a wealth of technology and knew the power of technology. And the reason why he created my position because he felt that Cleveland was missing out on having that kind of thought leadership about how can technology transform a region. So yeah. we were unique. I mean, again, he was your non-traditional, but and I and I and that's that's the reason why my position exists. So that actually takes us nicely into the first topic that I think we really wanted to talk to you about. And that is for the past five, six years now, you've had sort of a bird's eye view on how nonprofits are using technology. And like, what does that really mean from a philanthropic angle? And we've talked to other philanthropist folks, we've talked to academics, and what I'm sensing is there's this missing piece of collaboration that everybody's sort of touching a facet of that would greatly elevate service to nonprofits using technology. Uh, but like, what are the trends that you've seen in both use and need from where you sit? Great. And essentially, I actually pulled up a presentation that I did. Sure. Back in 2017. And it was talking about trends in technology and how technology is being used in non for nonprofits and so forth. I think I presented it at the um, first Tech Forward conference or the second one that was hosted by Tech Impact. And how I boiled it down was obviously when tech, you know, back in the old Empower days, mm -hmm. and past that, most nonprofits was just leveraging technology and they were just trying to, if the good ones were just pretty much digitizing their existing processes. You know, turning, turning something that's paper-based into electronic-based, you know, um, paperware into, into a website and things of that nature, automating, you know, accounting practices, you, you know, using QuickBooks and stuff like that. But then there was a second wave that kicked in where they began focusing on efficiencies and value. And how can they streamline things? Again, these are the more um, more proactive nonprofits. I'm like I'm not um, painting all the nonprofits with, with one brushstroke. I'm talking about the more progressive ones that, and then they are the trendsetters, and then everyone kind of follows along. By the way, can I clarify? By progressive, you don't always mean politically progressive either, no, because I'm I've had some super engaged. Yeah. you know, ordinarily perceived highly conservative organizations that are just like way out on the bleeding edge of this. Exactly. Yeah. When yeah. I say yeah. I'm more like about thought leadership, leveraging technology and all that sort of stuff, not necessarily, you know, on um, political persuasions or things of that nature. 
And then this third way kicked in, and I think this is where a lot of people are stuck. And it's, and it's basically how they're using technology outwardly. We've been using technology to improve, to automate automation and workflow automation, process workflow and all that kind of stuff. And some get it, some don't. Some invest in it, some don't. All, you know, I mean, geez, I mean, back during the early 2000s, it was all about go to the cloud, go to the cloud, go to the cloud, go to the cloud, 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 cloud. Is and the cloud no, safe? What is the cloud? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. So we had many conferences where that was just a talk of the town for, for who knows how long. And that was all about internal utilization, improvements, process improvement, you know, decoupling, getting, you know, going serverless and all that sort of stuff. But where things are kind of been stuck, and but some people have learned to leverage it is when you start leveraging techno technologies for your external mission, for your external utilization, start looking at technology outward. So if you're a food bank, how are you leveraging technology so that folks can, you know, using an app, you know, can register and, and pick food and procure food and, procure and, and schedule a time, make an appointment to pick up their, pick up their food and things of that nature. If you're, doing, if you're doing some other kind of transportation for seniors and so forth, how can you Uberize, you know, create an Uber effect for seniors that aren't walking around with smartphones and things of that nature. If you're dealing with refugees and immigrants, how are you automated and using built-in automated translations from Google and things of that nature and AI to then be able to communicate with refugees um, one way and they hear you in their native language. And then vice versa, they speak to you in their native language and then you hear them and you're able to point them into the right social services that they need immediately without having to have an in-person translator to do that for, for you. All that is external utilization of technology. And I think that's where we're still in this era, in this wave. And you, you know, you're hearing people, especially like with disaster relief, where they're trying to use drones to survey the land as opposed to having people drive in <laughs> type of thing. Um, some are really doing it. And, you know, and again, it's the minority, not the majority. But that's where I feel like in this era, in this way, this is where we're stuck is tech, using technology external for external use. And not just for fundraising, not just throwing a give now button on your website. <laughs> it's almost, yeah, I, oh, go ahead, Tim. That, that makes me um, just appreciate one of the reasons that that is extending and not moving past it is that you can't skip to the end on that. <laughs> like, yeah. You can't just, you can't just start doing program management in advanced kind of community portals, you know, with parents and, you know, in an after school program, for example, unless you have already moved to the cloud, mm -hmm. established patterns of behavior and, you know, rock solid back office systems. And, you know, and so what you're talking about is, you know, um, really stages of progression where you're envisioning more, but uh, a lot of, I mean, we encounter, I'd be curious if you find the same, we encounter a lot of people that want to get to the drone level <laughs> without having like, without getting past the basic 990 level first, right? Um, and, and I just feel like, you know, you, you actually have to reset those and calibrate those expectations. Like you can't go there until this is like second nature. Does that make sense? <laughs> No, you know, you're absolutely right. You got to do that. Before, and um, you got to be able to, you know, do, you know, elect, electronic deposit for your employees and not cut paper checks, but, but, but cut up drones and AI. 
I, yeah. I, Leon, the thing that occurs to me is, you know, I look at, cause I've got like 20 years of tech in nonprofit space as well. And I've seen some of these things come online and it's, it's almost like in some ways we've finally gotten to the point where we have tools that can really genuinely enable that externalization that you're talking about. But the moments where I reach sort of deep chagrin and ennui are around, are we just recreating bigger and bigger data silos in association with this? Because I look at it as great. Like we had everything on paper. That was one type of silo. At some point, the name of the game was put it all in a custom, like access, FileMaker, whatever database. That was a different data silo, but it, at least it was better than paper. And then, you know, where I sort of really came online was at the end of that era where I was like building access databases, but then it was the cloud thing. So now mm -hmm. you have the cloud thing creating cloud silos. Like it's just that the the breadth of these things become large enough that they don't feel like another silo until you realize it's another silo. So like what, what breaks that pattern? I mean, we all have our opinions and thoughts about this, but what breaks that siloization just at bigger scale with more complex tools? Because the answer is not, we're going to throw more tech at you. Right. No. So I've been on a few of those, we want this, you know, globalization of nonprofit data, and we want to pull it all and homogenize it all so that we can have a 360-degree view and lens of how our nonprofits are making an impact and how are we funding impact. And we do it at such a grand scale that we can't get off first base. We can't get off, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't even get to first base. But where I've seen it work is more in a cohort model. Or mm. tangible. So, for example, um, in human trafficking, I've seen where again cohorts of human trafficking agencies, uh, you know, pull pour their data together because, to some degree, they're interacting and they're and they're supporting the same the same constituents. They have the exact same issue, and they got to hear from each other. Otherwise, they're never going to get anywhere. So leveraging data, pulling all their data, and then tap and then seeing what that data is telling them, so they can identify trends, hot spots, predictors. I mean, here in Cleveland, we just wrapped up the NFL draft. I'm sure, unfortunately, that with a lot of people, journalists and 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 guests and people from overseas and everything, you know, flying in if they could because of because of, of the pandemic people congregating in downtown Cleveland and surrounding areas, because I saw enough party buses in, in limos going up and down the streets in some downtown, that our human trafficking nonprofits, you know, if they were leveraging technology and pulling it together and had a nice data, a data trust, if you will, to say, okay, what are the predictors, what are the census so that we can, inf we can um, inform law enforcement about certain things, or we can engage and talk to social services workers and stuff like that to prevent um, think for, for, to prevent um, occurrences from recurring. How do we network the, with the hotels? How do we network with these kind of things? I've seen that work, but that was because a cohort got together and saw the value in putting their information together and what they can learn and how they can accelerate their impact versus doing it on their own. 
The other example is what we just got, what we just experienced. Every city, almost every city, I'm sure, had, had stood up some kind of a COVID rapid response fund. We did it. Chicago did it. Detroit did it. New York did it. LA did it. Everybody did it. Boston and so forth. What that did was bring multiple funders together and funding organizations together to say, okay, where are we now going to pool our money in? And now how are we going to, you know, do donate and grant out funds to the food banks of the world, to the, to the, to the, to the um, homeless shelters, to get people off the streets to, for PP equipment, for, for, um, for um, emergency workers and so forth and so forth and so forth. But from that, now all of them, because they collectively funded and invested, they collectively have data. And they're able to collectively now learn from how did we do? What did we do? Who did we do it for? Things of that nature. So again, that was a cohort, you know, by, by necessity. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a human trafficking organization where they just kind of agreed to work together. This was almost out of sure necessity, but the model was still there. Now, those kind of bite-sizing it is where I think you see impact and breaking down silos of information, silos of data, silos of utilizing, utilizing technology for the greater good. But when we want to, like I hear every two or three years, someone says, oh, we just need to all pull all our, all our data in there in, in, in one bucket. And I'm like, why? I mean, 99% of us don't have to. There's nothing compelling us to do it. And we're always going to find our own unique reasons why we're different than you. You're different than us. We need an extra, we need extra field. You need extra field. We don't want to, all that kind of stuff that just breaks it down because again, it gets too big and we need to start much smaller and maybe, and then see about, and maybe it doesn't scale. Maybe it's this cohort model is it. And some things just don't scale. Like part of what's so interesting about that idea is that you know, we've talked now three different times about data standards mm -hmm. um, and how they emerge, how they're important. And what I hear, what I hear you talking about that I think is really critical to capture is that it has to, it has to actually get practical for people and it needs to get, that practicality has to be like focused enough for it to be immediately practical. And I think that's interesting. And also it's not a coincidence that a philanthropist can view that in a in a way that I think is harder for others to see because there is that there is a piece of that that is tied up in here's how we get funding and start to learn from this model and what we can do next with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's I think it's really important to to highlight and say like um, we need to address the market in terms of. Where does, you know, what's the role of platforms here? What's the role of consultants here? What's the role of nonprofits? And what's the role of funders? Um, and academics, that by the way. Hasn't. And academics, yes. You know, absolutely. that's like a five part, you know, that's a, what, yeah, five pointed right. star? What is that? Yeah, I don't know what I, that means. I was sure but, you were you know. going to go pentagram next on that. I could see it coming. Inverted over a dead moon. Exactly. I don't know. Oh my gosh, there you know? we go. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think I, I'm curious. Um, I'm curious if that is, if you've seen that work before, and also um, what you've seen happen in the past around uh, around emerging standards. 
Well, so I know Tracy, you know, we, when we were um, prepping for another um, webinar or seminar that we were on, we got to talking about standards. Yeah. And yeah, I like to consider myself a work in process, you know, technology history buff. Um, and it's like, well, how did we get other standards created? Because back in the day, I mean, you look at standards like, like you're talking about data, database standards like SQL. How did it become a standard? Why did it become a standard? And yeah, it was a long trough for, uh, for the IBMs of the world and the Microsofts and the Oracles of the world and, and, and Progress and other people to say, okay, we got an issue here where if we keep um, vendor locking in our clients, we're not gonna get anywhere you know, as an industry because people wanna be able to migrate and things of that nature. And engaging standard organizations like IEEE, the Institute for Electrical Engineering, um, and there's another in there. <laughs> um, you know, I, I used to know it by heart, electronics and electrical engineering, I believe is what it is. Um, otherwise they were gonna take my card. <laughs> um, it, um, but they enlisted them to define, okay, let's create a floor that we can all agree to. And you can build up your product yeah. Love that floor, but we got to create a floor, you know, where it's a select <laughs> from table <laughs> like like that, uh, select from where, and we all agree on that, and we're all going to spell the word select the same way, <laughs> and things of that nature, and other standards um, that came out of interoperability. I think was the what was the was the value proposition interoperability, whether it was. Everybody adopting HD, you know, the HTML protocol, not creating their own. Everybody, you know, an HTTP becoming a standard, not everybody creating their own and stuff like that. That interoperability was a reason. But now let's 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 I want to be clear that that was obviously being driven from the for-profit market, the private sector. And they they probably saw some kind of monetary um, value in doing that. They just didn't do it because it was the right thing to do. There, were, there had to be some kind of monetary value that compelled them to create interoperability as a necessity within their products um, that was governed by standards. And I look and say, well, what, is, what does that look like for us in the field of nonprofits? One, yeah. we're not profit-based. I love, I believe you might've said it, Tim, or someone said it, that you know, we're not profit-oriented, profit we're impact-oriented. <laughs> and so, what drives us? What will drive us to standards? And, you know, we can only do, we won't, only so many people are only going to do so much for the greater good. <laughs> There's got to be some kind of driver that's propelling us to that so that if a standard was presented, we all latch on to it. And it's driven by the vendors, not by the customers. The vendors see the value in interoperability, not the customers. Because again, going back in my for-profit days, when I used to work at companies like General Mills and their IT department, our customers who were buying Wheaties and buying Yo Play yogurt wasn't demanding interoperability. <laughs> we, you know, we were probably, you know, um, as we need this so that we can help service our customers. But again, were we really pushing for interoperability? 
demanding it. Otherwise, we're not going to buy your product and things of that nature because we saw a monetary necessity in it. It helped drive down our cost because we're never going to have just one platform. We're going to have multiple platforms and they got to be able to talk together. So you guys need to work it out so that they talk together. There's got to be some kind of driver. And the other thing I joke with you, Tracy, is that, yeah, well, technically in a nonprofit world, we do have a standard. We just don't realize it. It's called CSV. Yep. I was going to say Excel sheets, but CSV is kind of the underpinning right there. You know, that's what yeah. everybody is. Can I, can I export that into CSV? Can I import that into CSV? It's a standard, whether you realize it or not, like PDF. Yep. <laughs> and it's funny because like tools that highly impact driven nonprofits use, like SPSS, Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like they're out there demanding interconnectivity to, you know, the common data model. And mm-hmm. the reason why is because what do you feed into SPSS? You feed a CSV. Mm-hmm. You know, you just shunt that right in and you got what you need to do and the program takes care of the rest. Mm-hmm. I have a follow up, Leon, on one of your comments because I had sort of a small aha moment when you were describing some of the cohort philosophy that you were talking about, because what I heard embedded in that comment was, look, you know, tech companies as tech companies are going to do what they do. And that is solve things by applying tech, right? right? And if the challenge is finding a vendor driven solution around a standard, then I think there's a lot of people who are starting to think through like, okay, how do we translate that into a profit margin? Mm-hmm. But the third thing that you know I heard and what you said is, even if those first two things are true, then the problem becomes, we then have to take these things and apply them to how nonprofits actually can digest technology. Mm-hmm. And until the very same people who are doing sort of standards creation and standards implementation are also looking at the digesting of their own tools with the lens of the natural collaboration of the nonprofit ecosystem applied to it, that's still gonna be inadequate to elevate what the ecosystem needs to solve that thing that you were talking about at the start of this conversation. And that is, you know, like I want to deploy drones, you know, like there's, there's this high level of like, I want to deploy drones to solve this thing. Cause I know that'll get me what I need, but I can't do anything with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that what you're implying here? Because that's another layer of responsibility then in all tech providers to nonprofits that I don't think has been talked about a lot. Well, I want to take a step back because when we talk about tech providers to nonprofits, and now I'm putting on my former, you know, um, my pre-foundation hat. Oh, please do, because I love that hat. That's a great hat. (laughs) And and thinking about the technology and the technology decision-making that is going on with, with nonprofits from a vendor perspective. Yeah. Fortunately, especially, you know, again, our, our nonprofits are technology starved from a, from, a, from a budget standpoint. They're technology starved. We in philanthropy aren't cutting them six figure checks every, you know, to each of them, you know, so they can have a robust, healthy um, technology budget. 
So they're scrubbing two nickels together to try to, to try to get anything done. And what they're now looking for is almost, they're almost going to like the lowest cost denominator, if you will, in deciding on technology. Yeah. Um, you know, what's easiest and cheapest. Um, and, and again, somehow we got to break that cycle. We got to break that, 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 that thinking. Um, it's going to be hard. It's going to be deep um, because we kind of propelled it on them, you know, back in the days when we were talking about administrative fee rates and how much of your, you know, that whole, that whole hype around that. But I mean, that made a, my job as a technology manager very hard, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but from a vendor standpoint, you know, I, I, again, I go back to how are we providing products to the nonprofit so that whatever else they've invested in, it plugs in. Mm. It's not a boat on, it's not a one-off that if they have a donor management system, it ties into their event management system. It ties into this above and beyond CSV. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the CSV is really helpful. And if you remember, you know, Boomi and that whole thing, like you could create an entire uh, integration around a CSV and it would work fine. And, you know, in, and invisibly in the background, but it doesn't get at the mindset of here is how that data comes over and here, here's where I see it on one screen and now my manager sees it on another screen and now our participants see it in another space like that. That's the, the missing piece on all of that that I think ends up being really important when you start talking about layering on past the back office and into, ex, you know, extending out into mission. Um, you know, I think that that's, that is one of the places where it's going to be more challenging. Um, it is so, it, thank you for raising the point about administrative overhead versus long-term investment. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I, you know, agree and, you know, not pointing fingers, just absolutely that's true. And it's time for, it's time for that level of investment to be indicated by philanthropy, um, which it is, but uh, there's been a shift in that. Um, that said, what will happen, I'm guessing, is philanthropy will start to say, wait, how do we get more bang for our buck? Because nonprofits are not well enough versed in how this all works together to see it. You know, they get they get a grant and they've got one shot at hitting something that is really challenging to hit. And uh, philanthropy will see the same patterns over and over. And so I think one of the questions is how do you get investment at the philanthropy level to start looking at some of those questions as well, which you are obviously, because we're having this conversation, but. Well, from, I say from um, a number of foundations, not all foundations, because again, met one foundation, you met one foundation. Um, <laughs> um, That's kind of profound. Thank you. Right. I like that. Yeah, it's true. Um, but where we do invest is those of us, those foundations that say some of our nonprofits are our partners. And now we're investing in our partners. And we're pulling together those that we that, you know, it's almost like a smaller tent. You got the big tent, everybody that you give money to, and you got a smaller tent of, no, these are folks that I know get stuff done and I'm investing in them. It's not just responding to a grant request. 
because you're a nonprofit, your van broke down, you need a new van. So you're asking for $20,000 so you can go buy a used van. <laughs> um, it's, that, it's that investment dynamic. For many of our grantees, there are partners and we invest in them. And now we get past that whole administrative overhead piece. We fund their strategic planning if they need to look, or we fund, we give them dollars if they need to search for a new executive director. We give them dollars so they can do a lot of things, you know, for capacity building. But unfortunately, we can't do that for all of our grantees yeah. if, if you're funding 600 nonprofits a year or something that yeah. nature. But this is an area where tech companies can step up, by the way. And yeah. I know based on that conversation we all had, like you, Amy, Darrell, myself, and, you know, around this, like, I know that's kind of what he's on about over at Microsoft a little mm -hmm. bit. Like, right. I think what you've just hit on is the fact that you, 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 lie, you sort of answered my question in a roundabout way, and that is, you know, it's the way that these, any tech platform can show up is by creating these partnerships with the organizations that consume its technology and bear in mind that the greater goal here is not just so that you can use our stuff, mm -hmm. but so that you can use your data freely and interoperably, and at the same time, accomplish your mission. And I think that's, you know, that's the real answer there. And that is stop looking at it from the customer lens and start looking at it from the partnership lens. Yeah. And to, and to kind of rope that back to what I originally talked about with cohorts is that's where you're doing your major investment in your cohorts. Um, you know, those that you're, because you're trying to amplify the ROI, um, you know, the return on, not return on investment, return on impact, um, yep. you know, you're amplifying it um, through that cohort model. So yeah, if they also, if they've all agreed on a certain platform, if they've all agreed on a certain tool or product to help them push that, now you have this multiplier of, okay, I didn't have to fund eight different products for eight different organizations. I had to fund maybe two products for eight organizations because they yep. agreed on this and this, and that's how it will work. Yep. So and the force multiplier there is, yeah. at some point it doesn't matter if it's my product or not. Right. We're all making that impact. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, Leon, we are short on time here. And as always, every conversation we have with you goes way too fast. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about, you know, you spent a lot of time in the, in the for-profit world and now you're in the impact world. Um, over, over these years that you've been doing this kind of work, what, what, are you, what are some of the things that you feel like you've made the most impact? Where are you most excited about the work that you've done? And then maybe what are some of the things that you've learned, you know, um, after doing this for a decade? Well, I might have done that a little bit differently, and um, you know, some some of those things that you would go back and do differently. Uh, I think we're all curious about that. Yeah. Well, where I'm 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 happiest is when I'm working with the nonprofits. You know, putting on my former hat, and we made and I know that through my work and consulting with them, we made strategic impact. 
whether it was a mid-sized mental health and substance abuse clinic, that they needed to find a better way to do um, to do eligibility checks and pro and case management and interacting with homeless homeless um, homeless teenagers with through technology, and and helping them shape you know steer where they can again do um, a lot more in their space, but also working with really small um, small um, nonprofit. Real, helping them get more out of their investment because I connected them with the right kind of tools that was that was the right size for them as opposed to what they might have thought they wanted to go to because it was free. And I always told them that free costs money. If it's free, you're a product, you know, is what, is what they say. So that's what I'm most pleased about. I guess, you know, the challenge was, is always that when as a technology, and again, especially when you're talking with vendors, we're all like technocratic in our thinking, yo, you got a problem, technology will solve it. Is, you know, it was that beating my head up a wall when I know I can help the nonprofit save money, but their board doesn't get it. Mm. So they, they don't do it. Um, I'm like, look, it's free. Microsoft will give you free emails. You know, you can cut $1,000 a year off your budget. Well, we got to go to the board and the board only meets once every six months. So, so you got to keep spending money until the board gets around. <laughs> I mean, it's those kind of, you know, things. But then also it is, again, really um, trying to really drive when you look at the board structure. So there was another talk I did at N10 where I asked, what is your board's IT IQ? I was there. That was the, I thought that was where I first shook your hand for like 30 seconds. I was yeah. there. I remember that. That it, was like literally after a morning of me screaming at people about how nonprofits need to treat IT like the same way HR and legal. And then I saw you talk and then I cried. Um, yeah. so. I, mean, exactly. I mean, you're getting that to who are the decision makers. Yeah. You look at most nonprofit boards and even a lot of foundation boards, there's nearly a technology executive or technology professor or professional on their board. Yeah, you got lawyers, you got marketing people because they, they need to lean on them for some social media advice you know, or legal advice. You may have um, clergy, you may have distinguished people in the community that can pull some strings with fundraising, but nearly a technology, a technology thought leader, never a CIO, you know, nearly it. But yet, these are the ones that are signing off on your budget and telling you what you can and can't do. So it was really trying to push, drive through that. You need to diversify your board makeup and not have so many HR professionals and lawyers and accountants and, and social media people on there and get, get a, a well-versed IT person that can help sell the technology that you're trying to, or investments that you're trying to do. So haven't made the headways in that space as much as I wish I could. Um, and even in, in, even in philanthropy, again, but that's a whole nother thorny issue about how, again, board, board makeup at a nonprofit versus board makeup on a foundation is totally different. <laughs> um, but again, that's one of the things that I wish there's more can be done. And I do agree with what you both brought up about data. Yes, I do wish there were, there were some standards that was, making us accountable for sharing information beyond the 990. 
because I said, the only reason we do the 990 is because we got to, and if we didn't have to do 990, probably 90% of foundations wouldn't turn one in. <laughs> yep. Um, Leon, that that is really uh, inspiring. Thank you. The um, ITIQ idea on boards, it, like, like there's a whole nother like hour long conversation related to that that is um, fascinating. Every time, every time we talk with you, I just walk away with uh, a deeper appreciation for your historical context. Um, and I'm really grateful that when you came to the fork in the road on what you would do next with your career, uh, like we're, we're better off for you having chosen this. So really yeah, appreciate that were, and thank you. We're lucky I took that call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you for yeah. making me cry at a conference, you oh. know, five or 10 years ago, whenever that talk was. Thank you for so much of really your applied wisdom to this ecosystem. I think I say it frequently, there's not enough people from the business world of service mm -hmm. in philanthropy, I you know, and, and I think philanthropy sometimes gets a little insular in its thinking because of the absence of folks like that. Mm -hmm. So thank you for being that voice uh, in the Cleveland Foundation, also in the greater world, because I know you show up, you show up in all sorts of cool places. So I'm so grateful to have spent this time with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you both of you for having me on your podcast. I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronzak, and you've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters is a thought leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.